What is up, Big Stick Energy fam? My name's Renee, and I'm stoked to be in your ear holes for another Monday. As always, please, please, please leave us a review on whatever platform you're to name from. All of the Out of Collective shows and hosts really appreciate it. If you're a YouTuber, Out of Collective is moving to YouTube, so go hit the subscribe button there. Thank you very much. Last week was International Women's Day, and we hope that you or any of the female identifying slash femme humans in your life were celebrated because we all deserve it. Our guest this week, Caroline Aubrey-Wake, is a PhD candidate studying glaciers and rivers in the Canadian Rockies. As mountain enthusiasts, we can appreciate the raw beauty of glaciers and the watersheds that form cultural identities for the places that benefit from tourism in these areas and for people like myself who recreate and live in these places as well. There is nothing more beautiful than driving up the Icefields Parkway and seeing glacier after glacier after glacier. They are just so big, so phenomenal. They take your breath away. I highly recommend that drive for anyone that is visiting Canada. Like seriously, go do it. You won't regret it. Glaciers are really cool. <laughs> They're really cool. They're a visual example of climate change and it's not too late. Uh, Caro, she really like let me know it's not too late and we can make an impact still on our future and the future of outdoor sports. I learned a lot from this conversation and I know that everyone tuning into this one is going to come out of this episode having learned something new about the wild spaces that we all enjoy and I really just want to keep that going in the future of like being able to bring guests on that can teach everybody something, whether it's a mindset, whether it's something they're an expert in, whether it's their experience, and just keep on sharing what we all have to bring because there's a lot of special people out there. And Caroline Aubrey-Wake is one of those people and she's dropping in three, two, one. First, we got to talk about sponsors. Yeah. Without sponsors, we would not be able to bring you guys these episodes. We've got the skills, but we have to pay the bills. And we are so grateful to have these guys backing us and the out of collective uh, kind of movement and podcast series. It's, you know, what it's all about. So yeah, these guys are dope. First of all, we have Mammut. Um, Mammut, I feel like everybody knows who they are. They're kind of like a backcountry narbar gear focus brand um specifically their berry vox transceiver uh is one of the best in the market it was actually rated top transceiver by outdoor gear lab it's one of the top transceivers by evo when they're doing gear reviews and the nice thing about gear reviews for things like transceivers is they're not usually gendered like skis haha <laughs> figure it out um but yeah this transceiver has a super fast processor that can differentiate between beacons super fast between multiple burials has the best range um and it's the best model for multiple and pro level examinations so it really helps you make sure that you're out there being as safe as you possibly can be because you know all it takes is 
a second for things to go wrong and you want to make sure that you have the right gear to get you out of there as safely as possible to help you be found if you're buried and to make sure that you have the best ability to find people who are buried, especially if there's a multi-burial thing. Whenever I've sold ski gear, uh, like worked in ski shops and stuff like that, your beacon, your transceiver, you want to make sure you have a good one and you want to make sure you know how to use it. So this one is definitely a little bit more advanced um, in the usage, but it's one that has the best ratings for safety and we think safety is hot. So you guys should definitely go and read up on some reviews on that. If you're looking into getting back in the backcountry, go check out uh, the Mammut Berry Vox to see what it's all about and see how it compares to Black Diamond uh you know, backcountry access, tracker three, all that kind of stuff. It's definitely a little bit more pricey, but if you ask me, you can't put a price on safety. Ooh, sold it. Uh, our second sponsor this week is also Function Wear. So it's Function with a P-H, P-H-U-N-K-S-H-U-N Wear. These guys make a huge range of face masks, buffs, and balaclavas. And we all know that that perfect balaclava or buff literally finishes your ski kit. It is the perfect combination. I remember I got a cheetah print buff a few years ago, and it was from, um, not from Function Wear. I'm really excited to try some of their products and actually get them on. They should be showing up here in the next little bit, but everybody loved it because it completed my super cute monochrome kit. So function wear, super diverse product range, any fit, any outfit, you can find it. Uh, the perfect buff to kind of match you on your, you know, queen outfit journeys. Anyways, for Mammut, you can use the code out of bounds 20 uh, to get 20% off online. And for function wear, P-H-U-N-K-S-H-U-N-W-E-A-R, uh, you can use Out of Bounds to get a discount with them as well on their website. Go check them out, do your research, look cute, be safe, and let's get into the episode. Certainly. Um, yeah, so I'm a PhD candidate. I'm currently like finishing my fourth, fifth, I lost track of time, uh, year in my PhD. So I'm about to be done uh, and I'm studying mountain hydrology. So more specifically how uh, mountain glaciers and mountain landscapes are changing uh, due to climate change and how that's impacting water resources and how much water is going to be in the stream in the future. Uh, and I'm based out of Kenmore in Alberta uh, at an office uh, that is the University of Saskatchewan. So even though my the main campus is eight hours away, we have a lab here in town, uh, about 20 of us that all study water under different shapes and form, uh, where we can do field work, we can head out in the mountain to collect data and then try to understand what's going on. Is there a specific um, glacier and river kind of area that you study? Yeah, my main site is Peto, Peto Glacier. That's really where I spend most of my mental energy. Uh, I think about that place a lot. Uh, but then I also have some, some work that is at Athabasca uh, Glacier. So I'm very much focused on the Canadian Rockies, the water flowing to the prairies uh, into Saskatchewan. And how did you get started in this field? So I imagine that you, you say you do field work, so you get to spend a lot of time actually out there probably year round i don't know what that 
kind of looks like, but where did you get started in wanting to study this kind of thing? Um, first clarification, I do feel doing but I don't spend that much time out. I think a lot of people are under the impression that every day I'm out skiing and climbing for work. It's not true. I go out like maybe three weeks of the year. And then the rest of the time I'm at the desk behind the computer analyzing data. It's still super fun. I love it, but it's not like an everyday thing. Um, and I just don't want people to have the wrong impression of, of what my life is like. <laughs> and as for how I got into it, uh, well, I, I, I grew up skiing, like my entire family skis. We all ski. I ski raced until university. I was really into it. Um, and I typical Quebecer, I came out west to work a summer and be in the mountains. And I started hiking and I remember seeing glaciers and being like, whoa, this stuff is cool. And then I was always kind of worried about climate change and trying to understand how the world works and sea ice and the Arctic and stuff like that. So I studied earth sciences in my undergrad uh, in Montreal at McGill. And I kind of decided that I really like mountains and I wanted to know more about mountains and through different opportunities that I was able to pursue and different professors and different classes that I took, I was able to spend more time learning about mountains, um, specifically in the hydrology of mountain systems. And then that then led into a master's degree that I did at McGill where I was able to study glaciers in Peru in the Correa Blanca. And then I finished my master's and I was like, no more. I am done with science. This is too much work. It's crazy. The world is like going crazy. I need to do something to help, but like science is a little too much. So uh, I took a year off, came back to the Rockies to ski and ice climb because that's what I do as my hobbies. That's what I enjoy doing. And then I was like, actually, I really like science. So then I started a PhD and here I am now. But really, it kind of worked out because I like mountains as my hobby. Like, I really enjoy skiing and hiking. I like winter. I like snow. And then I'm always very curious about the kind of environment I'm in. So then by doing science in that topic, it feeds into it. And the two can build upon each other, which works really well for me. Was there a reason you chose Pado? I Like, Pado Lake is something that is all over Instagram, for one. So like, people listening to this, look it up. You've probably seen it somewhere online because it's very, very beautiful. But is there a reason why you were drawn to Pado Glacier in, in particular? Or was it just that the lab you're working out of happens to be studying that glacier? Yeah, it is It is more logistics. Uh, I mean, it is a beautiful place and I'm so happy it's that one. But Pado is one of the longest studied glaciers in the world. And in Canada, there's really only a few glaciers that are well studied. And for the type of science that I do, we need to have a lot of data from the past. Because to try to understand the future, you need to understand what happened in the past and how things changed in the past. And you need to have a lot of data to be able to test your hypotheses so then you can translate that then to future conditions. So you really need an environment where there's been a lot of measurements of the glacier uh, melt rates and the weather and the air temperature and the stream flow, like how much water comes out of the glacier. Uh, and Pado Glacier is one of those very unique sites in Canada where this is that this has been monitored since the 60s. Um, so it gives us a wealth of data and there's so many scientists that have studied that glacier that there's so much information that you can really build upon that to create new insights and discover new things. So I would like to say that I picked Pado because it's so pretty, but really I picked Pado because that's where all the data is that I need. But well, that is important. If you are trying to make these inferences, you need long-term data. You can't just study something for five years and say, oh, well, this is what's going to happen. 
because I mean, through my initial science degree, climate and how it works is it does this kind of wave of what the temperatures are going to be and how, and if you look like at like long, long, long time, like the ice ages versus like when it warms up, it's like a kind of wave pattern. So you need long-term data to be able to yeah. actually determine anything. If you just do five year span, you're not gonna tell all that much. Yeah, completely right. If you look at the variation, there's a lot of variability year to year. Like you could mm -hmm. have some really hot years, some really cold years, and then some more hot years, and then some more cold years. So if you only studied the hot year or just the cold year, you're going to have very different ideas about what's going on. So it's quite important. If you want to monitor change and see how things are, are changing in time, you need to have studied it for a long time. Yeah. So, you need, so, so you, as much as it'd be great if we could monitor every single glacier in the Rockies and really understand what's going on everywhere, uh, like we don't have that much time, energy and money. So you have to kind of select what you're going to do and make decisions. And long term is a decision that is a quite easy to make. So what kind of things are you finding when you have that data from the 60s compared to now? Like what what is it showing? Um, I mean, it's showing the same story that every mountain range and every alpine glacier on the planet is showing. Uh, it's warming, the glaciers are retreating. Um, there's the things that we assume were working like in the past don't necessarily apply to the future. Things are changing so fast, um, even year to year. So I used to think that like, I used to think that glacier change was really gradual, that you know, over 10 years, you would see some change. And over 20 years, you would see some change. And over 60 years, obviously you see some change, but now, everything's happening so fast that year to year, you go back and the place looks completely different. So at Peito, for example, a lot of us go in the winter for things like the Wapta Traverse. And in the winter, you don't necessarily see exactly where the edge of the glacier is. But since 2006, there's a lake that has formed at the toe of the glacier and it's grown bigger and bigger as the glacier retreat. And now the lake has expanded so much, so the glacier has retreated so much that you can't even get on the ice without crossing the lake in the summer. So before we could just walk along the side of the glacier and then hop on and go to our instruments on the toe. Now, I think we're gonna to have to bring a boat next year because we can't access the toe of the glacier anymore because it's floating in the water. Um, so we never know what we're gonna find when we go at this point. That's wild. I know last summer on the coast, we had an unusual, unusually hot heat wave because I got the healthcare craziness of that it was worse than anything in the entire pandemic all of the folks with heat stroke it was like a next level war zone in our emergency rooms it was so crazy but that probably was shown in your data as well like i can imagine like you're saying now a lake is forming there well it was very hot last summer so on one hand I'm like that doesn't surprise me and on the other hand i'm like that is also very heartbreaking it, i mean so last summer was uh, we broke all records of melt in a year. It was uh, that that heat dome that covered Western Canada was uh, causing incredible, incredible melt in the mountains. It was very sadly impressive, uh, but it created a super interesting phenomenon where, uh, like on the coast, there was like flooding warning because the glaciers were melting so much because of the heat. But then there was also like drought warnings and like it's too hot. There's no water, but in other places there's too much water. 
And that's really what glaciers do. When it's really hot out um, and it's dry, the glaciers can melt more because they accumulated snow for many, many years to create kind of these reservoirs of water up high. So when it's really hot and we don't have enough water downstream, they melt more and then we have water. And then I can only think about if we have this heat dome occurring again in 50 years or 60 years, once the glaciers are almost all gone, at least in the Canadian Rockies, then we won't have any water in the streams because they won't be those reservoirs that can supply the water. So it was, it was a very intense event and it really illustrated well what we're losing when we're losing our glaciers. Yeah, because that's entirely freshwater source. So I'm thinking like in my brain, I'm trying to think of like back to my rocks for jock course. I took rocks for jocks and then I also took a course at University of Calgary as an option called Geology of the Rocky Mountains. So I have like a very, very small amount of background kind of knowledge in this. But right now in my brain, I'm thinking of the, the map of North America and where the water flows. Is it called estuaries? Um, estuaries would be where the, the stream meets the ocean. Okay, they're like yeah. watershed or basins. Watershed, that's what I like to try to think of. So Pado is the glacier. So that would be the start of a river or a water source. Yeah. And then where is that flowing? Like, are there towns and cities below that? Pato drains into, so Pato is right at the border, right? So Pato itself drains into the Mistaya, which goes to Saskatchewan River Crossing, which goes to Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but just on the other side of Pato, so for example, Bow Glacier is at the head of the Bow River, and then that drains through uh, the Bow Valley and then Calgary. Uh, so either Edmonton or Calgary, they both get the water from that region. And then that goes through like Saskatoon and then further down. Um, but something that's really cool about this area is the Columbia Ice Shield, so Mount Columbia, is at the head of three different watersheds. So the water on Mount Columbia goes to the Atlantic through the Hudson Bay, to the Arctic, or to the Pacific through the Columbia River. Um, so it's very kind of a fascinating environment to study because there's just so much at stake with that environment, with that spot. That's really cool. But I'm thinking too, like my my parents' house is about a kilometer from the water treatment plant, but like the water comes out of the Bow River and goes to people's houses in my hometown. So that's a, a huge source of just fresh water in general for people that are in Calgary area is coming out of that river. So and There's a few studies about this, about how much of the Bow River in Calgary or Edmonton comes from glaciers. And really, if you look at like all year long, like all the water that comes through the Bow in one year, it's really only like 1% on an average year uh, that oh. comes directly from glacier melt. But on a year that it's really dry, uh, and in the summer, which is when there's no other source of water except snow and ice up high, then it can be up to like 20% that the amount of water in the bow uh, that comes from glaciers. So, the, so glaciers are super important for end of summer uh, water. They're not so important for like in February. Then the glaciers are not melting in February, so we don't have water from glacier in February. But in August, when it's hot and dry, then and there's no more snow, that's when glaciers can really come in and kind of help uh, sustain the stream flow. And that's probably when you're going through the most water as a municipality anyway, because that's when people are like wanting to like, water their lawns and stuff, which go is a lot of water that could be drinking water. Yeah, I, 
I'm not so much an expert on like the water usage. I'm much more work yeah. on like the supply, how much comes in. Um, and obviously that's just one part of the equation, right? You have to know how much water is coming in, but also how much water is used to complete, to know what the problem is and, and where we need some help. Um, so I work on one side of the equation and then other scientists work on the other side of the, of the demand part. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about. Is there is most of your um, studying done in the summertime where you're taking those measurements or is it year round? It's, uh, I would say for studying glaciers, there's kind of two key periods. So we go at the end of the winter to measure how much snow is on the glacier, how much snow has accumulated throughout the year. And then we go again at the end of the summer to look at how much melt has occurred during the summer. So really you definitely have two times a year that you have to go. But for us, we also have weather stations there monitoring, like recording the weather and the wind uh, and, the, and the sun, how much sun there is, because all of these help us calculate the melt and testing different hypotheses. Um, so for those, we have to go every few months to make sure that they're not fallen over or eaten by a bear or other things that happen in the wild. Uh, but luckily here uh, in our office, we have a few field technicians that can help us with that work or do the work for us. Uh, so I don't necessarily have to go all the time because I do have to do the work on the computer sometimes. So we're really lucky that we have these, these field technicians here that can help with, that are really the experts when it comes to weather station maintenance and stuff. Yeah, it, how long is your program like for, for this? Um... Uh, like my own PhD, my own work? Yeah, how long uh, does it take? <laughs> well, what a difficult question. It's supposed to have a really simple answer. It's supposed to be four years. Um, but I would say that most people, at least in my group, take longer. And it really depends to like if everything goes well, if you have some delays in your work because some things happen, like for example, COVID uh, caused some delays. Um, some people finish in three and a half years and they're done. Some people take longer. Uh, for me, I think it's going to be like five years that it's going to take. Uh, just because I added some more work and I took some, I, I added some extra work that I really wanted to do and then it slows it down, but it allowed me to have more things to answer and more interesting uh, science done. So it wasn't a problem, but I would say between four and six is, is the average time. Uh, do you think you would keep studying the glaciers or is there another thing that you are very interested in once you're done? Um, for now, I am definitely lining up myself to continue to study, not necessarily the glacier themselves, uh, but the hydrology of the mountain, including the glacier. So I'm really interested in how water flows from the top of the mountain to the bottom, like the, the town at the bottom of the valley. And that includes, yes, the glaciers, but also how is the water infiltrating into the ground and traveling underground? Uh, how are the different snow patches melting at different times? How are the trees intercepting the snow? So I'm, I'm more interested in kind of that comprehensive understanding of how the water moves in the mountains. And I'm actually, I have a, another research contract uh, lined up once I finish my PhD to go study this, uh, this surface water, glacier melt, groundwater interactions in the Himalayas. So kind of stepping up to bigger mountains, bigger scale. Um, so that's coming up for in the next few years. That's so cool. Cause you said you went to Peru for your master's. So what drew you to Peru? Because those mountains are very, very big. Yeah. Um, really what drew me is that my, my 
undergrad advisor, like the, the, the professor in charge of my undergrad program, I had a meeting with him because there was this math class I didn't want to take and it was conflicting in my schedule. So I'm just chatting with him and he's like, oh, uh, what are you interested in? I was like, well, I really like mountains and glaciers. And he was like, well, actually, I'm looking for an undergrad research assistant in my group to help us analyze some glacier data. And I was like, well, that seems great. I, now I don't have to take that math class and I can do research instead. Perfect. In hindsight, maybe I should have done that math class, but it was, felt great at the time. And my supervisor at the, of my master's, Jeff McKenzie, who was also my undergrad advisor, uh, I ended up working for him uh, for a few years in my undergrad and then during my master's, and he conducted research in Peru. So I was able to join that. So it wasn't as much a conscious decision as a, an opportunity that I could take. And then once I started, I was like, mountains are the best thing ever. Um, and then I really wanted to study the Himalayas for my PhD, but then this opportunity in Canmore came up and I was like, I love Canmore. I want to live here. This is the best place. So yes, I'm going to do this project here, even though it's not the Himalayas, but now I have an opportunity to go study the Himalayas. I just, I really like how different mountain ranges, they're all very similar in a sense. They have snow, they have ice, uh, they have mud and they have steep slopes. Um, so they're all the same components, but they all have these unique characteristics that make them a little different. And uh, I'm really interested in trying to understand how the different mountain ranges behave and also like how different mountain ranges will have different amount of water for downstream. So like the Himalayas are supplying water to the biggest population areas in the world, right? A lot of the um, Asian peninsula is fed from water from the Himalayas. So if you're interested in studying how mountains bring water to people, that is the place to go. Because that's where it's definitely the most important. In the Rockies, we have people, but we don't have nearly as many big cities coming around the Rockies as, for example, the Himalayas. Yeah, I guess I never really thought of it that way, but it's true. There's huge population density in Asia and the Himalayas are kind of right in the middle of that. So it would be flowing to India, it would be flow well, and like India and Pakistan are like right on the Himalayas. What's I'm trying like trying to think of like what's on the other side? Would it be like I don't have like, very good geology? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. There's like the seven countries around there that I mean I could yeah. the map, but there's definitely uh yeah, like the Ganges is one of the big rivers. The I I cannot say those those words out loud because I cannot pronounce them yet. You will though, because <laughs> if we talk again in two years, I'll be able to like I'll know all the things. Yeah, you'll be an expert at Himalayas in two years. <laughs> That's my goal. Are there like I'm try like if. If we have a, I'm just trying to like make sure I understand. So if we have a really good snow year, then we're getting good snow accumulation on the glacier. But how does that affect, like would a really strong snow year where our skiing is amazing, we're having pow days all the time, and then that would add to the glacier theoretically, but we probably aren't really seeing that right now. Well, it depends if we have, so let's say we have an average summer, right? The summer is not particularly hot or particularly cold. The summer is just like average. If in the winter we have a lot of snow, then we're going to have less glacial melt in the summer because the snow is going to like protect the glacier. And then there's going to be more like more snow to melt before we get to the ice. So it's going to be good for the glaciers. That's like 
great, more money in the bank for the glaciers. There's more accumulation, less melt. If we have a little, just not a lot of snow in the winter and we have the same summer, then the snow is going to melt a little earlier and then we're going to have more glacier ice melt. So then that's a bad year for the glaciers. So a glacier melt can really, like a bad year for the glacier, a year where the glaciers have melt a lot, that can definitely happen because there's not enough snow or because there's too much melt. But in reality, things are not so simple and it's always a mix. It's always like, ah, oh, there was this and there was this and this other thing happened. And then in the end, it was an average year for the glacier or a bad year. Um, but we did have, I mean, even though we are on a decline, like the glaciers are retreating really fast and the, the, there's always more melt than accumulation now, we had a pretty good year, at least at Pedo um, last year. So not this heat dome summer, but the year before, uh, there was a lot of snow in it. It's the year that we could like go ski the Wapta like in June or July. Like this, the spring lasted forever. People could go like on the Columbia like way late in the year. It was a great spring ski year. People would ski into July and not just the really intense people that are trying to ski all year long. Um, so that year was good for the glaciers. And we had a pretty good uh, end of year result. But it was more of a, it wasn't a normal year. Yeah, I've been that person. I used to ski all year <laughs> when I was in Canmore because we would go up the ice fields and go to Parker's Ridge and you could ski there on Canada Day, July 1st, like in beginning of July, you could still get some turns up there. So it's pretty cool. But I mean, how much longer are we going to be able to do that? Probably not last summer because it was so hot. <laughs> yeah, it's going to become even more hiking and even less. You're going to have to really earn your six turns for, for to be able to ski in the middle of the summer yeah. yeah I gave up my ski all year the last couple of years I, I just decided nope it's bike season get over it <laughs> yeah, that's my attitude I try to be seasonally coherent I mean there's always you could do everything all the time but there's sometimes where the conditions are better for one thing so I will not try to go rock climbing in February and I will not try to go skiing in July I'll do the seasonally appropriate sports because then they're yeah. like best conditions. Yeah, that's true. Um, for the Pedo, and you're going up there in the summer, you must have some good glacier travel skills then. Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, I did work at like Lake O'Hara when I was in my early 20s. Uh, and over there, like, I just kind of learned recreationally, like, how to climb, how to lead, how to glacier travel. Like I just remember spending evenings practicing glacier knot while like having a beer with my coworkers and like learning to prosec in the living room and, and stuff like that. So definitely a lot of recreationally, like training myself to do it based on books and questions and asking guides. Uh, but then I also did an actual course when I was in Alaska for an undergrad semester. I signed up to do like a credit course that was like glacier travel. Um, and then now with our office here in Kenmore, we do get training. So we did like wilderness first aid, but also glacier travel for people that will do field work. Because for sure, you need to have that training. You can't just be like, glaciers are cool. I'm going to go study them and then fall in a crevasse the first day you go. And then then no science is happening. So you, yeah. need, to, you need to be safe and gain, gain that knowledge before you can go out and do the work. And as they're melting too, like there's seasonal changes in the glacier, of course, with glacier travel. Um, but there's, I, I'm wondering too, is there also 
over time we're seeing more crevices or deeper crevices does that, is that so I think that it's i would say overall probably yes because as the glaciers get thinner like maybe the tension like of the topography underneath can get bigger so like if you have a glacier that goes over a bump like over a little cliff before you had so much ice that it could kind of do it slowly and be like over the edge now if it's thinner there's less room to kind of absorb that bump and it's probably cracking somewhere and creating bigger crevasses um so yeah i would say there's probably more crevasses now but i'm not con completely sure about this i don't know if anyone has actually studied this like the rate of crevasse change it's possible that some people have an answer that's more than just sounds uh, from coming from me um so yeah, I think as glaciers are retreating, there's more features appearing. Something that has come started to show up more and more on glaciers uh, here and in the Alps and on the coast is these sinkholes. So when glaciers, like Glaciology 101, when a glacier melts, uh, the water will trickle through the snow and then travel on the surface of the glacier until it finds like a hole. So it could be an old crevasse or a sinkhole, uh, a moulin, for example, where the water will go from the surface travel to the base of the glacier and then keeps traveling under the glacier between the ice and the rock to the outlet of the glacier, to the toe. And so these subglacial channels can be quite big. Uh, and in the summer, they're filled with water. And then in the winter, they're empty, so they kind of close back down. But now the glaciers are getting really thin, so there's not enough ice to really close them back down in the winter. There's not enough pressure, so they stay open. And then every year, they kind of get a little bit bigger. And now they're actually so big that the surface of the ice is not so far, so they collapse. So you have these like massive sinkholes that are opening randomly on glacier toes because you wouldn't know it's there, right? It's under the ice and then all of a sudden there's just not enough ice, so it opens up. And that's something we saw at Pedo. Like all of a sudden we saw there was a big collapse in the middle of the toe. It's just this gigantic hole. And until that day, we had no idea that there was just a few meters of ice under us. We thought that it was like still 20 meters of ice. Um, and so these sinkhole features, I think, can be a little bit more tricky and, and potentially a little dangerous because you don't know when they're going to open and you have no idea to detect them until they're there. And that's new. We didn't see that before, like 15 years ago or not that's as commonly. Something. Yeah, that's something I was just kind of thinking of is, is glacier travel getting more dangerous as time goes on because the features of the glacier are changing? But I have very basic glacier feature knowledge. So maybe you could explain a little bit better some of the features that you would come across as you're navigating a glacier, what makes it safe, what makes it not safe. And this is like by no means uh, like glacier travel, like you should now go out and no. go on a glacier. Because if, if you are doing glacial travel, take a course, you need to learn how to rope up, you need to learn where to go. Falling into crevasses can be very dangerous. You have to know how to access those properly if someone does fall in there. So absolutely, if anyone's listening, take a glacier travel course if you want to go. But I think it'd be cool just to talk about like a little bit of the features that you might see. Yeah, and I, I'm just going to totally second that idea that, I mean, there are professionals that spend the equivalent of a PhD learning to travel on glaciers and they're mountain guides. They are experts at it the same way as I'm an expert at measuring glacier melt. And like, they know what they're doing. And I would say like, learn from them uh, and not just from me that goes on a glacier recreationally and for fun. But in, so in general, I would say that anything, any change is a, 
can be dangerous. So anywhere that there's a change in angle, like the slope or a turn, like the glacier does a big turn, um, that those are all areas that could be more at risk because glaciers are, they're like a fluid. They're like frozen molasses. Molasses? Molasses? Yeah, molasses. Molasses. They're like frozen I think because in French it's, it's molasses. <laughs> yeah, I never know if there's a mess. So frozen molasses. So they kind of like, they can flow and they can move, not too bad. But if you try to like move it too fast or like when it's frozen, it's going to crack. It's going to create some, it's like a Snickers bar that you bend. There's going to be cracks on top of it. And those would be the crevasses. So as long as you move it very slowly, it's not going to crack. It's going to be fine. But if there's a quick change, such as a turn or a nice cliff or like going over a bump, then you're going to have more, more likely to have crevasses. And then, so crevasses, any time that there's a, a change on the ice is a good spot for them. And then the other thing I would say is that that is really specific to um, climate change is the fact that mountains are warming. Uh, so the, the ground that was always frozen in the cliffs and on like, around the glaciers is now warming up. And as it's warming up, it, it's not frozen anymore and it collapses more often. So you have an increase in rockfall frequency uh, in the mountains. And like an example of that is Abbot Hut, right? Abbot Hut, the ECC hut at Lake O'Hara that was just announced a few weeks ago that's closing for, for good and they're removing it. It was sitting on a mountain pass that was just frozen all the time. So it was very stable, but now it's not frozen anymore because it's warming. Uh, the air is warming around it. So the rock is thawing. So all of the debris are starting to fall off. And then there's no more support for the hut. So the hut is at risk of falling off as well. So for safety, they had to close it a few years ago and now they're removing it. And that has to do with um, just the way of how much space water takes up when it's frozen in the rocks versus melted in the rocks, right? That's why you get the rock fall is that the ice that's like holding in the rock, it melts. And then now you've got these instabilities where it used to be ice holding it. Is that correct? Um, yeah, so the ice, the frozen water, and even the frozen rock, even if there's really not a lot of water in it, when it's frozen, it's kind of all stuck together and it's like solid. And then as it thaws, as it warms up, that water doesn't act as glue anymore and then it can all crumble. So before it was like an ice cube with rocks. And now it's like a puddle of water and all the rocks fell off. Yeah. So as we get warmer, we also run the risk of rock slides too. Mm -hmm. And like rock falls on cliffs, there's been like in the Alps around Chamonix, there's uh, famous routes that were, that were damaged because of rock falls in the mountains. Uh, so that's becoming a hazard and it's really unfortunate for climbers and in general mountain safety, like it's going to, it's, it's getting more dangerous because things are changing a lot and we travel in the mountains based on how it's been in the past. And we've learned certain ways in the past of how to move and where to go, but that might not apply anymore because things are changing so fast. So one more thing to keep in mind for overhead hazard, right? <laughs> I mean, you never expect rocks to fall, but um, I know like Ceracs or something that you're always going to be mindful of if that's above you as well, more so than like, oh, there's rocks above me. You might you might not be thinking so much about the rock falling because you don't expect the rock to fall. Um, but Ceracs are, I think, so beautiful, but they also terrify me. <laughs> they are gorgeous. And yes, they are terrifying. Uh, they're like a, 
sleeping beast. You never know when they're like, you, you can't predict it. You don't know. It could go at any moment. Yeah, it's really hard to, to know exactly. Yeah, uh, but in, in terms in of safety, I would yeah. also say just like even traveling in Moraine, like the recently areas where the glacier has retreated, that's super unstable terrain, right? Because it's brand new, like the glacier has just left. So there's a bunch of very unstable rocks. So like traveling in moraines to access the mountains can also be, uh, also can be tricky and, and, and really unstable. Moraines are just tough going too, like huge boulders. I, I did a big, um, a big one out here near Whistler uh, two summers ago. And coming down off of the glaciers, we went and did this kind of knife ridge traverse above. It's called Armchair Glacier, my friend Sophia and I. And when we came down, you come down through this huge moraine field. And my knees got destroyed coming down through that because it's all these huge boulders. Nothing. There's no gravel in sight, no dirt in sight. I could have kissed the ground when we got back to the dirt trail because you're just moving through such like it's just boulder from boulder to boulder. Nothing is even. You're just boulder hopping and trying to step down off of all these uneven rocks and some of them are moving on you. And yeah, definitely, definitely feel that. <laughs> and then you're like, why are the glaciers retreating so much? It'll be so much easier. Oh, totally. And actually uh, on that hike we did, my friend had a picture of one of the, the other glaciers that you go by on that is, I think it's called Wedgemont, Wedgemont maybe? I don't remember the exact name, but she had a picture from a couple summers before and seeing that lake with the glacier behind and she looked it up after and then compared the picture to us being up there last time. And even then you could see the glacier was way further back than it used to be. Yeah. So the this route was different than it used to be. There's this super cool uh, website, or well, this uh, project called Mountain Legacy, and they are reproducing archive images. So they're revisiting sites where images were taken, like in the 19, like 1940, 1915, yeah, like early 1900, and they're going back to these places and taking exactly the same picture, and you can see the change in the landscape. And there's pictures from all over Western Canada, and it's really cool to go and just compare. And sometimes you don't even recognize the landscape. You're like, wow, like. If I didn't know this was taken from the exact same spot, I wouldn't. I, I would say that it's not. I would say that you're completely wrong. And they have some really striking example of like Rogers Pass um, or Cinnaboyne uh, or the Wapta Ice Field, and it's very impressive. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. Maybe we can I, um, add that to the show notes. Is there any other resources that you have for that people could look up if they do want to learn more? <laughs> putting you right on the spot. Yeah, right here. on the spot. I, mean, <laughs> Sorry. I just thought of it because you said this website. I was like, hmm, I wonder yeah. if there's any other. That one is definitely um, fun to navigate and, and easy to navigate. So I'm going to suggest that. Um, and then if I'll think of more things, I'll add them on later. Yeah. Anything else, just send it to me and I'll <laughs> add it into the show notes for people to go and, and look up. I know, I know um, like glacier travel courses will t teach people too a little bit about the different features that are on glaciers and how to navigate those. And um, we mentioned Seracs, but I don't know if, because not everyone that listens to this podcast probably is in an area where they're necessarily near a glacier. What exactly is a Serac for people that don't know? 
So a serac is when there's so there's for a glacier above a cliff, for example, and the and then you hit the cliff and it's too steep, so the ice cannot keep traveling on top of it, so it completely breaks off. So you just have these massive ice cliffs that are very unstable above a cliff. And the another tidbit of Glacier 101 is that glaciers move, right? It's snow that accumulates, and then through the pressure of the accumulated snow, it transforms into ice, and then it starts to flow downhill. And so the crystals of the ice inside the glacier are deforming and then slowly moving down the mountain. Uh, so that's a really important, that's what makes a glacier a glacier, it's moving. And so when you think about it, that means that the ice on top of the, of the cliff, the edge of the Serac, is also moving downhill slowly at a small rate. But at some point, it moves enough that that chunk of ice that's sitting up there is like, ah, I'm above a cliff. And then it just falls over uh, because it's been pushed over by all that flow. And then you get these massive it could be it could be like microwave, it could be house size, it could be building size that falls over this cliff and falls down down the mountain. So they are really unstable. They're really, really hard to predict because they're not linked to anything really. It's really how much that ice is moving. And that's not something that you can judge by just looking at it. Like we don't know. So every time that you have to travel through a Serac or under a Serac, it's super dangerous and very nerve wracking. You have no idea what's going on. And you just kind of have to hope that today is not the day. Yeah, but they are very beautiful. I know driving up the Icefields Parkway, you get to a point on that. And the Icefields Parkway is between Lake Louise and Jasper in Alberta. And driving up that road is sincerely amazing. You get to a point where you're like, oh, glacier. And then you keep driving, you're like, oh, glacier. And it just gets to a point where it's like every two minutes you're going by new glaciers. And it is so beautiful and so breathtaking. And I really do recommend anyone that is considering a trip to the Canadian Rockies, drive that road at least once. Do it on a nice day. You will be completely like breath blown away. Stop at the lake, look at look at, at the glacier. And and you remember um, that when that lookout was built, you could actually see the glacier from the lookout. It yeah. was built to look at the glacier. Now the glacier has retreated so much that you cannot see it anymore, but you can see a beautiful lake. So it's okay. It's still gorgeous. Yeah, but you will see Seracs if you drive oh, down that road. <laughs> and they're yeah. really amazing. I I'm terrified of them, but it's so cool you see that blue ice that just hangs above and it is kind of intimidating when you know what it is and that it can just break off anytime but it is really cool yeah best admired from afar like <laughs> for bears. real bears and seracs <laughs> for real <laughs> respect them yeah they need space yeah so you went skiing yesterday where did you ski uh we did uh, and yeah, Bell, we did Belle Couloir at Taylor Lake. Oh, uh, I haven't done that one. I hadn't either. It had been on my like to-do list for many years now, but every spring, uh, like either weather to line up or work, because uh, one of the downside of my job is that often field work in the spring happens at the same time as good ski season. So for a few years, I either had conferences or I had field work planned just when like, spring skiing starts so i missed a lot of, of good ski ski seasons here in the rockies because of science hard life 
but yesterday it lined up, good partners, good snow. It was so cold, but the snow was so good. Uh, do you ski mostly touring or resort, mix of both? Uh, mix of both. I really like the ski resort uh, early season, especially to so get my legs and get my confidence up. Um, because like I'm not gonna, I'm not able to ski so well if I haven't done many turns before. So going to the resort early season allows me to really kind of build on my skills, remember what I'm able to do, remember how to move on my skis, and then I like to take that in the backcountry afterwards. So I really like touring. I really like going out in the mountains, kind of being self reliant. Um, like the relationship you build with your adventure partners, I really like that, um, and kind of being. Yeah, away from stuff, just out there doing something for the day. Uh, but to be able to do that properly, I need to get my skills up, which happens at the resort. Yeah, I love resort skiing. I haven't been touring much this year. I've been quite bad in that respect, but because <laughs> well, I bought a snowmobile. But hard life too. I mean, I it was, is a I was... hard life. You, you honestly, like, really in Whistler area, there's. There is definitely touring you can do off the road, but it's very busy and you have to get there so early. But to access the really good alpine terrain, sometimes you have to drive 20K on a snowmobile to be able to ski tour. Yeah. So I've been just working on my skills so that future me can go sled access ski touring and then just like drop the sled and walk and be in the alpine when I do it. I'm not a slogger. That's something that's really nice about Banff and Kenmore area is that, well, there's often a, you can start from the road and we're pretty high already and the snow line is, the, the tree line is not too far. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and also I am terrible at sledding. Like I find it so difficult that I'm kind of relieved I don't have to do it because it is, it is a skill. It is, yeah. It's very hard. I totally <laughs> underestimated it. I was like, yeah, whatever, sledding. You just sit and go. Hmm, no, difficult. Yeah, it's just sitting and going if you're on a road. As soon as you get off the road to where you actually want to ski and trying to get to the spots you actually want to ski, that's when it goes like difficulty level. For me, it's still like difficulty level, like 12 out of 10, but we're getting there. Yeah, like anything, you have to start poorly to get better. You can't just be good right away. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. But yeah, it's been a nice change. I've been skiing for so long. Now that skiing, I am at a certain level with it that if I don't perform at that level, sometimes I can get frustrated at myself. But when I'm sledding or mountain biking, I wasn't that good. I'm always still progressing. And then you get that little boost of feeling good about yourself because you're still progressing because yeah. it's new. I'm a little bit of a beginner at it. <laughs> I just have to stop because I, I did that. Like I, I used to ski race. So I used to ski a huge amount and I wasn't like a free rider, but I was quite good at just skiing. And then I moved to the Rockies, skied here, went back east. And I was like, eh, I'm kind of over skiing, whatever. So I stopped skiing for many years or mostly ice climb. Like I still skied, but not so much. And I came back to the Rockies and now I'm back into skiing and kind of rediscovering my love for the sport and really embracing skiing and just being so happy to be back at it that I don't care so much that I'm not nearly as good of a skier as I was when I skied way much, way, way more. And it's okay. I've yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sometimes you need those breaks to reset your mind and just get back to being outside because you like to be outside and spend time with your friends and 
get into that headspace that you're kind of describing with your tour that you did yesterday of just really being so taken over by the experience and getting to be outside and be away from the computer and away from your cell phone and everything that goes along with that and just be at peace in the mountains with good people. Mm -hmm. I agree. Uh, as we wind down here, can you let everyone know where they can find you? And if you have um, any other parting remarks, cool things that people can look up, um, it's all you to say whatever you want here. <laughs> Uh, first, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter, if you're a Twitter person, at cryocaro, cryo.caro. And if you're wondering, it's not a weird, like, I'm going to be frozen when I'm dead, is that cryo is the cryosphere, so the frozen world is the cryosphere, so it works with my name, because um, uh, some people have been confused. But at cryocaro, either on Instagram or Twitter. Um, and as a parting message, I would say something that we discuss a lot Kind of in the last hour is climate change and glaciers disappearing and it can feel super overwhelming and dramatic uh, but it's not like it's too late uh, we don't know exactly what the glaciers will look like by the end of century depending on the actions that we take as a society we could have 30 percent or 40 percent depending on where you are of our glaciers left or we could have almost zero and that really depends on kind of what type of actions we take today like as a society and individually as well, but also kind of all of us together. And so it's really easy to feel kind of it's too late, but it's, it's not too late. It's never too late. There's always something we can do uh, to make sure that we can still enjoy the mountains and access the mountains in the future. That's, that's a good note, <laughs> a good little note. I, I, I find sometimes too, you're trying to do things in your own life and then you feel so small as such an individual where I'll be like, okay, I'm going to eat plant-based and like focus on that for my carbon footprint. And then after, sometimes it just, you just get your head, you're like, oh, is this even making a difference? Am I even making a difference? But I think it does. In and, I mean, if everyone does it, it will definitely make a difference. It's also a good way to become aware of the problem and, and do more actions and kind of uh, do push for actions as a society as a whole, because it's true individually we do stuff, but we still need to make decisions that are more than having an electric car individually. Um, mm -hmm. But all of that is to say is like, that is not my area of expertise. All I can say is that we don't know, like based on the science, we have different projections for the future, depending if, if we take action for climate change or if we don't. And that will lead to very different futures of how the mountains would look like. And then I will pass the mic to a social scientist that actually understands what kind of actions we need to make to, be, to get those futures. Um, all I can say is the futures are still open and we can act to reach, to get into different directions. It's a good positive note to end on. It's not too late. <laughs> it's not too late. Ski season is still savable. <laughs> yes. Yes, I really like skiing and I really want my grandkids like in many, many years to be able to ski. So we got to we got to do something about it. Well, it's been great talking to you. I personally learned a lot. So I hope that everyone listening at home or at work or wherever you are on Mondays also gets to 
learn a little bit more about glaciers, whether you have them in your area or not, and just kind of have that food for thought. And I hope everyone has a good day and we'll see you next Monday. Thanks for listening. Thank you.